Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. All right, hello, welcome back to Semio Bites. Um, I'm Terry. Um, this is Yoni. Hello, Yoni. How are you? Doing? I'm doing great, Hashem. And you? Same. God willing. May I be this well adjusted for the next episode that we're going to go into here. Um, yeah, we we thought we'd come into the discussion of anti-Semitism, which at the moment is a pretty hot issue with all the uh, disruption and violence that's taking place in between the Israelis and the Palestinians. That's been topmost in the news now for several weeks, actually. COVID went away, so I guess they had to have something else to talk about, right? <laughs> um, I, I guess that's possible. Um... I hadn't really attributed the two together, but I can see with the news cycle that makes sense. I, I do want to say something, though. Um, hearing, hearing what you said, it made, me, it made me a little more understanding of why there's these perspectives going on right now. Because, you know, from I have a different perspective than most other than the Jewish community. I've been in Israel. I, I understand some of the geopolitical climate there. And um, I subscribe to Israeli news, and I read that instead of American news. And it was interesting, you, you said the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I hadn't heard that before, um, because on the Israeli end of it, there's not a conflict with the Palestinians. The Palestinians are stuck in the middle. There's a conflict with the terrorist organization Hamas. And, and it's interesting because it seems like that's a lot of the news cycle is, Oh, look at these poor Palestinians. They're stuck with this. Um, I just recently read this thing about how these Hamas invited news reporters in to show some of the schools that were damaged during the conflict. And it says, look at how horrible this is, what this conflict is done. But the damage done on one of the schools, the shrapnel damage done on one of the schools, is not caused by Israeli gunfire, it's caused by how Hamas launches their rockets. And this is where a lot of it comes back is very, it's, it, it is, I'm gonna end up offending people here, there's no way around it. <laughs> um, the, the, the naive American viewpoint that the news is right, it's on TV, so it must be true, or whoever speaks louder should be heard too. And that's that's part of the problem is that in a, Israel does not really, they recently have taken to social media to say, this is what's really going on. But generally speaking, in the past, they haven't bothered. Like, who cares? If Hamas wants to say this, whatever, we know we're right. And that's part of where the conflict comes from. And that's part of the misunderstanding is that Israel really sucks at marketing for itself. And Hamas really has marketing down really well. But the challenge is, Hamas intentionally shoots their rockets inside schools and hospitals and AP buildings. <laughs> and that they, they intentionally do that so that if Israel were to retaliate, there would be a risk, there'd be loss of life. Now, so let, it's let me, an interesting- let me, let me make sure I understand. Of course, this is very fascinating. You're, yeah. If I understand what you're saying, you're saying that Hamas has done a really better job than Israel in positioning itself as the voice of the Palestinian people 
and not just a, a, a terrorist group, if you will, within the Palestinian. Um, there's a word I'm looking for, but within the Palestinian culture world. Okay. Yeah. Diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora. They position themselves as the voice for the whole Palestinian diaspora when in actuality they're kind of a small terrorist type group within it. That's point one. Yeah. Point two, one of their terrorist strategies is to pick the targets that will make Israel look worst when they retaliate by launching their offensive attacks from within schools, press buildings, hospitals, etc. And mm -hmm. a lot of the scenes that you end up seeing in the mainstream news in the West, the damage you're looking at was really done because of the launch site as opposed to the incoming Israeli bombs, correct? Yes. Now, Israel does counterattack, but how they do it is unique. And that's within Judaism, we have this obligation for the sanctity of life. And Israel does not want to harm innocent bystanders. They don't want to have collateral damage. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but they do everything they can to minimize the damage. Now, if we if Israel wants to minimize damage, there's two ways they can go about it. One, they cannot retaliate and let more Israelis die. Or two, they can retaliate, but tell everybody where they're going to retaliate and when so that the innocents can evacuate. And so what the IDF has a habit of doing is when they're going to do an airstrike on a site, they call the site or they use speakers or whatever. And they say, we are going to attack this site at such and such time. Please evacuate. We don't want people killed. We're just destroying the rockets. We're destroying the ammunition. And so for the AP building, they were given over an hour notice to get out of the building because Hamas was using it as a headquarters. Now that's a complicated thing because you know America is still trying to negotiate with Israel for proof. So that aside, but Israel does this for all their strikes. As they say, we are going to attack here. We don't want people harmed, so get out. I cannot think of a single government that would do the same thing. No, that's certainly true. <laughs> certainly not the U.S. military, as far as I know. I mean, uh, so that raises an interesting dichotomy because I, I let me be upfront about this. I have not closely monitored the situation. I have not looked into its historical inertia to any depth yeah. I've done historical research. I have not, in other words, I'm basically just exposing myself to the drive-by mass media shootings. <laughs> yes. Well, the mass media likes to say, oh, Israel's colonialists and look at what they're doing. Well, and it's an apartheid state. Also, the impression that I get from just kind of being a bystander to the message, the impression that I get is that the technology gap between the, the Israeli defense system, the Iron Dome, I think it's called, right? Mm -hmm. It's quite yep. good at shooting down, according to the media. It's quite yep. good at catching those missiles from the Palestinian, the Hamas missiles on their way in, destroying them in the air so that the worst damage they do much of the time is falling shrapnel or parts or pieces or whatever. And yep. They're, the numbers that they that seem to be coming out of the media is that Israel's 
offensive or counteroffensive is an order of magnitude more deadly, an order of magnitude more lethal because Palestine has no Iron Dome. And the, sure. the, um, the Israeli uh, armament that they send into Palestine is an order of magnitude more deadly than the weapons that are in the hands of the Hamas that are throwing, they're throwing across at the Israelis. This is kind of the general impression that the mainstream media is propagating. So can you, since you look at the other sources that are closer to it, and you watch it more closely than I do, how inaccurate or accurate is that model? I know people that had to spend a very long time in bomb shelter. People from our community that moved over there, their kids were canceled school. They'd been in bomb. They had been in a bomb shelter for over two days, and it's terrifying. But the loss of life is significantly reduced in Israel. Not every missile gets deflected by the Iron Dome. Plenty have made it through. Of over the four thousand rockets shot, I don't even think the, the remote is. It's like ninety-five percent of the rockets at least have been destroyed. It's true. The, the damage is not comparable in that regard. But the counteroffensive that Israel strikes is only at Hamas targets. There's only at people who are actively protesting against Israel. And here's where it gets complicated. One, it's not an apartheid state, despite what the media says. An apartheid state does not look the same as Israel because in regards to Pal in regards to the Palestinians and Israel, Israel says. You there? You froze up there. Right after Israel says, you froze up. Israel says, okay, here, Israel says to the Palestinians, here's money, here's health care, here's education, here's food. Consider yourself a citizen of Israel. Don't associate yourself with attacking us and help us build a greater country. They even, the, the Arab parties even have a political party within Israel in the Knesset. The problem for the Palestinians is that they have that, but Hamas is a political party for the Palestinians within their own governmental structure in Gaza. And so when you have Hamas on the ground, they're saying, look how evil the Israelis are. If you don't help us, you're gonna have problems, right? What are you gonna choose? You're gonna choose otherwise. And so, Israel does not go out of its way to harm Palestinians. They do everything they can to avoid it. But if a Palestinian chooses to take terrorist actions against the country, they will retaliate. And so that's where you end up with, oh, so-and-so was shot or so-and-so was arrested or these types of things. And while not everybody in the IDF is perfect, I'm amazed with how, how much self-control and restraint Israel shows. Uh, back when Jerusalem was sieged by Israel and taken over, they, they got Jerusalem back. They could have pressed farther and they could have made there be no Palestine in the first place. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. The Torah says not to over, not to mistreat our enemy and not to eradicate our enemy. So we have to recognize that they're humans and they have the shamans as well. We're going to stop here because this is where we can call a safe boundary. We don't need to eliminate them and they can exist with us. Okay. And then you have arguments 
particularly with the squad, but there's arguments within American politics saying, let's redraw the borders back so you don't have Jerusalem anymore at all, which puts Israel in a dangerous situation of non-existence. And I mean, we, we've had a guest speaker for that in the past, but the colonial part that we have had some politicians here say, oh, well, you know, Israel's just colonialists and colonialism is a horrible, evil thing. One, you're saying this on American Indian land that you stole and murdered them for. Hypocrite much. And two, you see that wall there that we call the Wailing Wall? That is thousands of years older than the dome they put on top of it. They're the colonialists. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, so, so speak to the uh, mainstream messaging around the two-state solution that supposedly Biden is, is backing and promoting and trying to sell to the Congress to fund and adopt as a military um, coalition, if you will, with Israel. Um, Israel, um, under the leadership of Bibi Netanyahu, whether he's good or bad in your opinion, this is something he's argued extensively for. He has argued for a two-state solution. And he has agreed to most of the peace treaties that have been presented for this. He has argued effectively for it, and he has stood behind any peaceful solution that allows Israel to peacefully coexist with its neighbors and be safe. It's Hamas that has not. And the problem is, is that you need to define what a two-state solution is. An American perspective is, oh, the two, the two countries live next to each other in peace and harmony, kumbaya. And Israel saying, that sounds like a great idea, but do you understand Middle Eastern politics here? Because Hamas is saying, oh, two-state solution. Oh, that's going to be an Arab country that's different than our Arab country. That's two different states. <laughs> There's no Jews in that solution. Yeah. That's the problem. It's The world was angry at the Jews after World War II, after the Holocaust, and saying, how could you not defend yourselves? How could you let the slaughter happen? And now Israel has the means and the training to not let the slaughter happen. And the world's saying, why can't you go quietly into the good night? <laughs> why rage against the dying of the light, right? Yes. And so that seems to have been a platform for anti-Semitism increase here in America, an 800% increase, but it's just a pathetic excuse. If you're an anti-Semite, you're an anti-Semite, just you, whether or not you're looking for excuse to act on the anti-Semitism. What's happening in the Middle East does not necessarily mean the Jews here in America are doing it. That's a thinking error. You're justifying your racist behaviors that you've chosen to act out on and make an excuse for deplorable subhuman actions. Yeah, and they are horrible. I mean, it's it's just... I would, there's one that I watched that might have been an anti-Asian one, though, come to think of it. I don't think so. No, this was an attack on a Jewish man in New York City. I believe. It was between, you, you probably saw the footage. It was between two parked cars, and he was attacked both from both ends of the gap between the two parked cars. And people were literally mobbing around him in that tight, cramped space. And he crawled partially out of it, if I recall correctly. And he was being struck with objects. I mean, I, one looked like he had like a, a crutch and he was striking him with it. 
and others. But the funny part, not funny, the kind of grotesque part of it was that people would strike two or three times and then run away. And two more would come up and strike two or three times and run away. It's not like there were six people standing there just pounding him for five minutes. It was like there were a dozen people who ran up and pounded him for 10 seconds and then ran away. <laughs> it was a bizarre piece of visual semiotics. Um, I, it was not like a gag attack. It was like just a, a spontaneous fit of hatred had taken over. And it's almost like they didn't know or care who they were beating uh, or whether they lived or died. They just had a moment, an opportunity of spontaneous hatred expression. And they may have known specifically and said, it's great, but it wasn't like, at least in my observation of it, my discernment of the signs I was seeing, it wasn't like it was a targeted attack. It, was, it had a spontaneity to it. Not to say it wasn't anti-Semitic, but just that there was a spontaneity like seizing the opportunity of the moment. It was just, it was, yeah. you know the clip I'm talking about, that piece of footage? There have been so many incidences, even here in Portland, that I, I may, I don't know. Baruch um, Hashem, uh, I haven't had to experience much. I had somebody yell at me, free hummus, and I said, oh, there's free hummus, really, where? So, I mean, they could have been saying free Hamas. That was right after the AP building collapsed. So maybe they're saying, please pull our Hamas terrorists out of the building. I don't know. But either way, we haven't had to deal with too much. Um, one of the individuals in our community did get gang beats, but was not necessarily because they're Jewish, but because these people, I don't, it was not a Jewish anti-Semitic attack. They're walking through a park and got attacked. I don't know entirely why i mean portland has become portland's had over 800 percent increase in violence over the past year because of all the protests and everything but he fought back and he won the fight because he ended up with less injuries than them but the other day it showed up on our security footage that one of the people was walking past our synagogue said oh that kid we had in the park he's here get everybody here and so our security team is aware of monitoring they're monitoring situations we have camera footage we have the police working with us we have private security arms we have community members who carry and are in the synagogues and they're armed and we're we we lock our doors and you have to know the combos in order to get into the buildings and so if you don't know the combo then you weren't invited <laughs> and so we we're doing safety precautions and so that way we don't have any incidents. But, you know, uh, others have not been so fortunate. And the other day, it was, it was, it was a few weeks ago, we were, I was at the Colel, and the Colel sits right next to our shul. And we are in there learning between afternoon prayers and evening prayers to end Shabbat. We were just learning. And there was time for us to go daven our evening prayers. And so one person walks out and stand there, and these kids on the sidewalk across the parking lot start yelling some things at him. And right then the doors open and all 15 of us come out in our black suits in a hurry to go to prayers. But we come out looking like we have a mission, all of us in black suits. The kids looked, saw these men coming out and they ran. <laughs> it's almost like the little rascals with the cops showing up, right? <laughs> so it was, that was great. It was like, well, at least we can intimidate. Yeah, yeah. But, so, so 
I mean, the, the history, correct me if I'm wrong, depending on how you look at the history behind this strife, um, it dates back to Abraham in one perspective. And the other, it dates back to the mid 20th century, right? When Israel was given a statehood, right? I'd say the current conflict we're discussing, the conflict itself comes back to the British mandates. Okay. The, the British decided to pull out of the Middle East. And so they gave mandates. The Arabs didn't want the mandates. So the Jews took the mandates to work on it. And that's where the, the, the blame of colonialization comes from because the Jews were kicked out of Israel after the fall of the Second Temple around 70 Common Era. And trying to reestablish a, a home is where the issue is coming. As people say, oh, you're colonials, you're settling here. And we're saying, well, no, we're just rebuilding. We're not building, no, we're rebuilding. And so that's where a lot of the current conflict comes from is they're rebuilding and they're surrounded by enemies. Yes, there have been some recent trade agreements with the neighbors, and we certainly hope it holds out. But that's the, the current conflict comes from there. It's the fact is, is that there's a couple of facts here. One, anti-Semitism is people hating the Jews. Whether or not there's a reason for it, they hate the Jews. They just use reasons to excuse the behavior. Two, the Jews really are not ever safe in the country that's not their own. We have the golden age of American Jewry and it is coming to an end, which is what we've witnessed with this increase in anti-Semitism as it looks very similar to how Germany looked when Hitler came into power. There's some similarities that are very concerning. And I guess those are the two main ones. But the fact is, is that we have to accept that there's hate and that we need to learn how to defend ourselves and that there's always going to be anti-Semitism. And it goes back to the question of why. And when we talk about Har Sinai, Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, when we receive the Torah, the word Sinai, it's Shorsh, it's root, is Sinam. It connects to the same word. Sinai and Sinam have the same base word, same three basic letters in making. Sinam is hate. So the full story is at Mount Sinai, at the Mount of receiving the Torah, God said, the world will hate you for this. And so we accepted that by following God's law and by being a holy nation of priests, we do screw up a lot, but we do try, that that physical reminder of morality people will naturally hate okay. that's the problem is it is a theological soul issue that's causing a physical hate issue that a secular society can't comprehend it's interesting um, as i continue to deal with the six mass extension issues and all that surround that of course these conversations always resonate in that chamber for me and the metaphor that the the signs keeps kind of yelling at me lately is the further you dig into what's happening on a global perspective and this isn't to diminish the anti-semitism at all don't misunderstand me it's like every possible 
division between individuals, between tribes, between communities, between states, between nations, every possible division has been weaponized to maximize our self-destructive tendencies from suicide to genocide. And I cannot escape this metaphor that the same, you know, the word Watiko that I've used a couple of times, that First Nations indigenous word for the madness, mm -hmm. yeah. cannibalistic greed. It's, it's th that Watiko madness rules the world today. That wealth and power, as I see it, holds the rule and control and it is utterly, totally pathological, um, sociopathic. And with that in mind, the metaphor keeps resonating with me that in 1939, the gas chambers were, I forget the name of the gas that they used, but it was some really toxic poisonous gas. And they had to build a structure and they had to build the plumbing and they had to create the gas chamber lie about what was in there and march Jews and gypsies and you know all of the 11 million in there in massive numbers. Well, this time they didn't have to march anybody anywhere. They just turned the whole fucking planet. I'm sorry. They turned the whole freaking planet. You can you can bleep me if you want. They turned the whole planet into the gas chamber. And yeah. we're, we're, there is no escape. <laughs> I mean, and that metaphor has become increasingly um haunting in my thinking it's yeah. not it dominates it but it's it's kind of i realize that that's a bubble in which i'm doing my thinking it doesn't inhibit my thinking you know but it is the bubble within which i have to do that thinking which is an, an odd reality to have to inhabit but to bring it back to what you were talking about what does the is there an end game here and what does it look like? And just a final kind of point, I must say I was impressed. And this seems to be an occasional trend. I was impressed at the level of violence and how quickly it erupted. And then how fairly quickly a truce was reached, tentative, tenuous and fragile though it may be. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, what was it? it's not an eight days war, but it, it was like a three week war, you know, in a certain kind of shallow sense. So I'm interested in your impressions about that change that quickly in both directions. Well, that part's easy. Um, despite the despite the years of elections we've had, we still have the same prime minister right now, right? Bibi Netanyahu. Years ago, he was quoted in regards to a two-state solution. He said, what you need to understand the land of Israel is what the word hello and what the word goodbye is in Hebrew. It's the same word, shalom, which means peace. All we want is peace. So that's how you can have such a quick resolution. But the problem is, is that it creates an unhealthy precedent for other. If you look at America, America would never agree to a peace treaty with Hamas. Why? We don't negotiate with terrorists. Israel, life is too sacred to waste politics with you. If you'll stop shooting, we'll stop defending. That's the perspective. And so we just need to wait for Hamas to run out of rockets. <laughs> there's, a, 
there's uh you know ron white the comedian no i don't actually he's one of the uh jeff foxworthy ron white uh, okay table guy right the southern redneck humorists they were hilarious mm -hmm. i loved them being somewhat southern or largely southern in my acculturation i love their humor ron white has a special um i'll stop talking if you'll stop listening <laughs> very similar um i i do want to point out one thing Please. that i've i've heard the sentiments a lot lately is awfully suspicious and convenient the hamas suddenly had the money for all these rockets within days of Biden's group giving money to the Palestinians. They had no money when Trump cut it off. They couldn't shoot us. Now suddenly they had money. When America gives money to the Palestinians, it goes to fund the Hamas terrorist organization. That's just something that Chris Hedges has been, been on the wrong side of, I fear. Much as I admire his work, he's, he's very vocal and stridently so in his criticism of Israel in this conflict. Um, and it's because it's it, that when the election was going on, before Biden was elected and Trump was ousted, he, his essays and his interviews were very vocal in emphasizing Biden's history with the ruthless murder of Palestinians. And I, it was so much so that I thought that's even a little weird for you, Chris. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I don't know how much you followed what he's been saying about this, but he's a very strident critic. I mean, he said he would not, kind of like I said, I, the last vote I would cast would be for Trump. The last mm -hmm. vote he would cast would have been for Biden. He wouldn't vote for Trump either but he would not vote for Biden either because of what, what Biden's history with his Palestinian friends. Now, he was embedded over there, not so much in the Mideast as in the Eastern European genocide, you know, ethnic cleansing context for like a decade. He was embedded there as a chief, a, a embedded war correspondent and eventually became chief of the bureau, but he was hardly ever in the office. <laughs> He stayed out in the front lines. That's his whole reputation that gives him his credibility. Uh, but I was puzzled by just how strident he was about that. Uh, what's he missing, I guess, would be my question. You know, there's a recent meme that's been going around on Facebook. I don't know if I'm able to pull it up or not, but like as far as to quote it accurately. But it, it goes along the lines of, oh, you believe such and such and such and such huh, you might be an anti-Semite, or you may have been influenced by anti-Semitism. And that, that is one thing that is, that's the part problem of the narrative, is when you, when you hear only one part, when you hear only one side of the story. Right. And this is where, when we talked last season, where I was saying birthright was being unfairly attacked, is that my birthright trip, we heard both narratives. We went to multicultural centers where we got to hear everybody's narrative. And when we brought in Benji and did an interview with um, Benji Davis regarding the geopolitical climate, he said, it, these are definitely issues that need to be addressed. And it's not ideal for the Palestinians, but what you're also facing 
questions. At what point can we mitigate? When is the minimum loss of life? And unfortunately, the current structure has been the minimum loss of life. Uh, before 2005, Israel occupied Gaza. And there was worldwide pressure for them to pull out. And in 2005, they pulled out of Gaza and allowed Gaza to be a Palestinian country that was self, self-ran. And I got to say, in the 16 years since, they haven't done that good of a job. So that's part of the issue. But the Palestinians are still offered plenty of opportunities and benefits. And Israel has even sent COVID vaccinations over there, which is a lot of people are like, well, why haven't you done it already? It's like, what's well, the foreign government and they're treating their citizens first. But in a comparison to America, America is just not having conversations about shipping out vaccines. They have the most vaccines. I'm just not talking about shipping it out. Well, hasn't America helped out Mexico or Canada? We can go into that. It's very easy. It's easy to do that. And so it's people don't understand the politics of what's going on over there and actually getting to know the people and the struggles. And I think that's where the confusion and misconceptions come from. Yeah. And so when it's, when it's, oh, you're different than me and we don't listen, then we have problems. Yeah. There's a, uh, uh, a fish cartoon that came up recently in the, in the, th- before the truce, after the violence had escal- escalated. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to share it and I'd be interested in your impression. It's not, it's, it's PG, but it's, okay. it, it touches on a discussion you and I have had previously. So let me go ahead and share the screen. Yeah. Huh. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll give a verbal description just in case, you know, our viewers are listening to the podcast. There's a menorah, right? That's the candle, seven-point candle labra, right? Yep. And on the left, there's it's empty. It has neither candle nor anything in it. It's just the menorah by itself, and it's labeled the religion of Judaism. On the right, the same menorah has seven sticks of dynamite <laughs> in the holders, and it's called the State of Israel. So it's basically the cartoon by Mr. Fish is drawing the distinction between the religion as being nonviolent, I guess, is one way to read that, or empty. And, you know, I mean, it could go kind of as yeah. a subtlety there. And on the right, it, the subtlety goes away. <laughs> There's nothing subtle about seven sticks of dynamite. Uh, but it's saying that the state stands for something different than what the religion stands for, which is how I would interpret it as part of its central message. So what are your thoughts? I would say that the state and the religion are two different things entirely. However, sticks of dynamite would not be the appropriate symbol I would use because the state of Israel does want to have peace and does not want to have to use force. They use it as a self-defense method. And yeah, you may come across stories of IDF soldiers doing something horrible and deplorable. And that's the unfortunate part of human nature is mistakes happen and tragedies happen. And they're not the and they're not immune from the struggles ever governments have had. I've heard about the atrocities committed within the American military. Yeah, we don't talk about that. We we don't we don't bring that out as a huge issue or how bad it is. We just say, oh, it's the military. And so there's a double standard. And so 
one needs to educate themselves, but they need to recognize that just because you see a Jew, it doesn't mean that they're involved in this conflict. And regardless of what you believe about the conflict, there's always more to learn because these are people we're dealing with and it's not a two-dimensional war. And that's the thing. We live in a 3D world. You have to get to know the depth and the understanding and that there are different narratives and people disagree. The most we can do is hope for peace. We may never achieve it, but we can hope for it. But there's something I've seen interesting is that every time when there's been persecution against the Jews, it hasn't worked. And I don't understand why the message hasn't been relayed yet. The generally saying within our community is the nations are saying, why won't you Jews just die? And our answer is, we've been here for over 3,000 years. You really think we're going to go anywhere? I say, we, we've worked at the worst of it. What can you do? And it seems that whenever anti-Semitism increases, you see an increase in octus, which is a, a brotherly bonding together between non-religious Jews and religious Jews. We stand together when attacked. And all the anti-Semitism is doing is reinforcing the strength of the Jewish people and helping more non-observant Jews learn to be observants. Because I, I know somebody who said, I don't wear a kippah, but I may wear one just to prove a point. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is that. Uh, Chris Hedges did write a book on um, War Gives Us Meaning. And part of that message is that when, when even strangers uh, within a community or a tribe or a group are attacked from without that community, tribe, or group, whatever their differences are, they will stand together. And police will tell you that a domestic dispute is one of the most dangerous calls they have to make. Because however bitterly the husband and wife may be fighting, when they show up, the one thing they're going to do is turn against the cops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's proven over and over, you know, and they, they will, most cops will tell you that that's one of the worst calls they hate to make. So, yeah, this is... Um, the times they are and are not a changing. <laughs> yeah, there's one last thing I want to say. Um, and this is intentional cliffhanger. Okay. Okay, is that um, America has been going through a hard time of trying to re-identify or self-identify or whatever you want to call it. And there's been this woke culture on trying to approve microaggressions and come to terms with its past. America was founded on horrible things, violent, horrible rebellion that all Americans still say is justified, but we're not okay with things that happened during that rebellion. And one of the things that have been targeted recently is the systemic racism against people of color in America. And it is a great thing to discuss and it is a great thing to work against. I find it fascinating that nearly every single Jewish person supported Black Lives Matter and supported the movements on eradicating systemic racism. I find it fascinating that the first people you'll find defending somebody that's different, whether it's a gypsy, whether it's gay, whether a person of color, anything that is different or a minority, the first people group that stands up to defend them and says they deserve better and we wanna help is the Jews. And yet, when this happened, nobody stood up in return. That's a good cliffhanger. 
So until next time. Till next time. Thank you, Yami. Always Thank a you. blessing. You did say something about it being three-dimensional. I think it's four-dimensional. Remember Pashat? Ramesh? Well, of course, of course. <laughs> but most people can't see or comprehend there's a fourth dimension. Well, the beauty of it is, though, the further you go, it's a paradox. Go figure. The further you go into those perspectives, the wiser you become, but the less you know, because you get the mystery at the bottom. And embracing that mystery is the wisdom that you're after. I mean, this I'm speaking contradictions as I say this, right? But that well, we we have a concept and taught in the Gemara. If you want to understand man's origin, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, it's better that you weren't born. We're not saying you can't learn, but we're saying in the process of you in the process of you learning this, you will no longer be human. <laughs> okay, there's a couple of a cliffhanger and a teaser. <laughs> yeah, we have more episodes to come on these topics, but racism in the end is wrong of every type not just against people of color, not just against different ethnicities or nationalities, but even against different religious beliefs or cultural values. And I'd like to see everybody stand up together. Hatred and violence, nothing right about those from any perspective. There's not, yeah, a lot of people think of this. I know, I know. Thank you, brother. Thank Amen. You. God bless, and we'll talk again soon. Yep, definitely. Till next time. Shalom. Till next time. Shalom. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yedbrook and SemioCity that answers Semitic questions via semiotic analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.